Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A blueprint that holds the key to one of the most tragic disasters in U.S. history. It all happened in, in what seems like a fraction of a second. A child's doll that harbors a sinister secret. I didn't want to go near it. I didn't want nothing to do with it. And an ancient journal that proves truth really is stranger than fiction. They had been to the depths of hell and back. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Monroe, Connecticut. This idyllic New England town is home to a bizarre collection of artifacts that are not for the faint of heart. This is the Warren's Occult Museum. I would describe this museum as probably the most haunted location I'd say on Earth because the objects that are here are unholy, they're unblessed. Since 1952, this unconventional museum has housed a sinister array of skulls, satanic idols, and other cursed objects. But according to curator Tony Spera, the most diabolical item here is a simple child's doll named Annabelle. The doll, at first glance, looks like any other rag doll. It's got the stringy hair, it's got the button eyes, and it's got striped feet. It's just a beautiful little doll to some little girl. But this doll, that's not the kind of doll you want to give to your daughter. The curators at the Warren's Occult Museum believe that Annabelle has the power to kill. We believe it's responsible for the death of a young man that came here to the museum. So what is the real story behind this devilish doll named Annabelle? Connecticut, 
1970. A nursing student named Donna is celebrating her 28th birthday with her roommate, Angie. To mark the occasion, Donna's mother has sent her a rag doll. But what none of them know is that this is no ordinary doll. Donna keeps the toy on her bed as a reminder of her mother's love. Then, one day, when the girls come home from class, they notice something strange. The doll has moved. And they'd come home and the doll's legs would be crossed, or the arms would be crossed. And they start to get a little suspicious, like, what's going on with this doll? And it seems that the doll's powers don't stop there. They'd find notes written on parchment paper and pencil saying things like, help me, help us. Little notes that didn't make any sense. At first, the girls seek a rational explanation for the mysterious notes. The girls thought maybe someone was getting into the apartment. What they did is they'd mark things to see if when you walk in the door, you're going to move the rug a little bit. The nurses said, we'll know someone was in here. Well, nothing was moved except the doll. That freaked them out. Fearing that there may be a malignant force at work in their apartment, the girls call in a medium and hold a seance. The psychic said, you have a spirit of a little girl named Annabelle. She was killed in in his apartment. Then the medium reveals that the spirit of the dead girl has possessed the doll. She's in that doll. She's the one that's trying to communicate. Now they're concerned for Annabelle. And now they really, really started to treat Annabelle as a human. But not everyone is convinced. Donna's friend Lou refuses to believe the doll is possessed, a mistake he would come to regret. One afternoon, while Lou is taking a nap, he has a terrifying nightmare. Annabelle is crawling up his leg, coming at him. He said, and then she gets to the top near my neck and she starts to squeeze my neck like she's trying to strangle me. Lou wakes up, gasping for breath. And when he looked down and opened the shirt up, you could actually see claw marks. Now they knew. They were frightened. Desperate to be rid of the evil effigy, Donna and Angie contact Ed and Lorraine Warren, founders of the Warrens Occult Museum. And the Warrens have some alarming news. They believe that the spirit lurking within the doll isn't a dead girl, but a demon. I didn't want him to take the doll, and I didn't want to go near it. I didn't want nothing to do with it. But Ed Warren is willing to face down the doll. He agrees to collect Annabelle and bring her back to the museum. The car ride home was terrible. You knew that you were carrying something that was bad, evil. He'd be taking corners, and all of a sudden the car would be jerking, and then it'd start to stall out on him. Very uncharacteristic of the car. Finally, he stopped the car. He took a vial of holy water, and he sprinkled it on Annabelle in the back seat, and he made the sign of the cross. Ed's actions may have saved their lives. He seemed to calm Annabelle down enough to make it home safely. And for a time, it seems as if the spirit that appeared to inhabit Annabelle has been cast out. 
until several years later, when one skeptical visitor challenges Annabelle to demonstrate her powers. This young man, he runs up to the case. He says, this is a bunch of bunk, but I don't believe any of this stuff. If this thing could put slashes on somebody, do something to me right now. Ed was like flabbergasted. He said, hey, son, sorry, you have to leave. Three hours later, this young man was dead. He died instantly when he hit a tree head-on with his motorcycle. Did Annabelle put a curse on the man and cause his death? Of course, there's no way to prove it. The lesson you learn from this story is you do not challenge evil. You do not challenge the demonic. And whether you believe it or not, this chilling tale is enough to persuade visitors to the Warren's Occult Museum to choose their words carefully when in the presence of Annabelle the doll. Cleveland, Ohio, in the heart of this Midwestern city, is one of its most prominent and treasured landmarks, the Cleveland Museum of Art. According to museum director David Franklin, its galleries house more than 40,000 objects from around the world, spanning 6,000 years of artistic achievement. You really see the best of the best in the Cleveland Museum. Drawings by Michelangelo, sculpture by Praxiteles, masterpieces by Caravaggio and Monet, artists of that stature. But one of the most intriguing pieces in the museum's collection sits not inside its walls, but outside its front doors. It's made of bronze, weighs 1,600 pounds, and on top of its pedestal rises six feet high. It's called The Thinker, and according to art handler John Boykman, it's one of the most iconic sculptures in the world. It's become a symbol of philosophy, self-reflection. It, uh, it's a symbol of man's ability to contemplate his place in the universe. This statue is one of more than 20 casts of The Thinker that the French artist Auguste Rodin made over a hundred years ago. But even though they were all cast from the exact same mold, this museum's thinker is dramatically different from the others. The feet are gone, and the base of the pedestal is completely open. And the sheer unexpectedness of that always startles people. So how did one of the world's most famous works of art come to be so badly damaged, and why? March 24, 1970, 12.45 a.m. A violent explosion goes off in front of the Cleveland Museum of Art. At the center of the blast is the statue of the thinker. The statue was blown completely off its pedestal and landed face down in a pitiful condition. Luckily, no one is injured in the blast. But the aftermath leaves the city reeling. It was as if someone had slashed the face of Mona Lisa or something to me. But who would destroy an artistic masterpiece? We've received no, no warnings, no notices, no phone calls, and uh, we simply haven't the foggiest idea of who, who could have done it. Fearing this could be the opening salvo in a spate of terrorist attacks, police launch an immediate investigation. In a spent dynamite cap 
they discover a homemade fuse. Its crude design leads them to conclude that it's the work of an amateur bomb maker. The police did believe that it was a homemade bomb and it was placed in between the legs. Investigators still have no idea as to the identity of the bomb makers, but an examination of the crime scene does reveal another clue. There was a graffiti on the side of the monument's base. You can only make out the word class at the bottom. It was something, something, the something class. If that graffiti linked it, then it, it might have been class warfare. The early 70s are a socially and politically charged time. And class warfare is a common rallying cry for left-wing groups. So did a cell of socialist radicals bomb the thinker? On the front steps of the Cleveland Museum of Art is one of the most iconic statues of the 19th century, Rodin's The Thinker. But its heavy steel body is horribly disfigured. Police believe it's the victim of a homemade bomb. And the number one suspect? An unnamed group of radicals. But who would target this precious work of art, and why? Police draw up a list of organizations they believe could be behind the bombing. The group that tops the list is a gang of homegrown revolutionaries whose stated aim is to topple the U.S. government itself. Their name? The Weather Underground, or The Weathermen. They had the rallying cry of bring the war home, and they were known to bomb. And they were just getting going in, in the uh, fall of 69 and the spring of 70. In fact, the Weather Underground had recently used a homemade explosive to blow up a police memorial statue in Chicago. But why would the Weather Underground target statues? New York City, February 1970. It's three weeks before the Thinker bombing. In the basement of a Greenwich Village townhouse, members of the Weather Underground are secretly assembling nail bombs packed with dynamite. At the time, they were plotting to bomb a dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and kill our soldiers. But while they're building the bombs, disaster strikes. They obviously weren't very sophisticated bomb makers, and they ended up blowing themselves up. The townhouse is reduced to a pile of rubble, leaving three of the terrorists dead. Devastated by this loss, the group makes a pivotal decision to stop targeting people and attack iconic landmarks and buildings instead. And police wonder if their first strike in this new campaign of terror is against the thinker. By bombing the statue in the middle of the night, they would have made an anti-establishment statement while minimizing the chances of civilian casualties. But despite the circumstantial evidence pointing to the weather underground, Police lack sufficient evidence to make any arrests. And the case is eventually closed. The statue is returned, in its strikingly modified condition, to its original home at the front of the museum, where it still sits today. It was decided that that vandalism in itself could become part of the piece, part of its history, part of the history of Cleveland. We may never know who bombed the thinker in 1970, but its position on the steps of the Cleveland Museum of Art 
serves as a reminder of a turbulent time in American history and the violent deeds of a terrorist cell who were never caught. At the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, the proud history of one of America's oldest cities is on display. In its holdings are thousands of rare documents and artifacts that tell the story of our nation's colorful past. But deep in the museum's archive lies a relic from a dangerous and terrifying time. Its yellowing surface is littered with signatures of varying scripts and sizes. This aging document is intrinsically linked to one of the darkest moments in American history. When a wave of terror and recrimination swept through a New England community, leaving more than 20 people dead, and an entire town plagued by fears of sorcery and black magic. What role did this parchment play in the infamous Salem witch trials? Salem, 1692. It is a typical day in this quiet community when suddenly two young girls become strangely ill. These girls would writhe on the floor and leap over furniture and say that they were being attacked and pricked and tormented. Concerned for their daughter's health, the girls' parents seek aid of a doctor. After examining them, the doctor presents his diagnosis. The girls have been cursed by witches. For Salem residents, the idea that witches might be living in their midst is nothing new. In 17th century New England, religion is a central pillar of life. And nothing could be worse than people who defied religion. People who practiced witchcraft. At first, the girls claim they have been bewitched by a group of vagrant women. The people initially accused of witchcraft are outside of the mainstream of this community people who are thought of as being the usual suspects. With no one to defend them, the accused women are imprisoned. If found guilty, they will be hanged. But the witch hunt doesn't stop there. According to the girls, the town is host to a coven of witches. And at the center of it all is an elderly matriarch who outwardly exemplifies all the ideals of Puritan life but who, according to one of the girls, is a terrifying and ruthless witch. Her name is Rebecca Nurse. Rebecca Nurse was the model New England citizen. She was a 71-year-old, pious, a mother of eight grown children with grandchildren. But her untarnished reputation is not enough to counter the accusations laid against her, that she is a witch. Rebecca Nurse was deeply troubled. And so are her neighbors. If Rebecca Nurse, this upstanding grandmother, could be accused of witchcraft, then it really meant that no one could be safe. Elderly Rebecca Nurse prepares to go on trial and fight for her life. Rebecca enters the court. Almost immediately, one of her young accusers falls to the ground in a grievous fit, 
continuing not just the accusations she made before, but acting out right there before her, it must have looked like a circus. The bewitched girl claims that she is being tormented by Rebecca's ghost. One of the problems Rebecca Nurse faced was that she wasn't being accused of things that she had physically done, but that her specter had appeared to people and abused or tormented or tortured. And this type of spectral evidence is completely permissible in court. There's no real argument against these accusations. Rebecca Nurse essentially has no chance. Rebecca's neighbors are appalled by these absurd accusations. But they are terrified into submission. People found themselves in the very dangerous situation. If they stepped forward to defend Rebecca, they in turn could be accused. If they speak out, it could spell their own doom. Their own lives would be in danger. The stakes are life or death. What will they do? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A faded sheet of yellow parchment is on display at the Massachusetts Historical Society. It comes from one of the most terrifying times in American history, the Salem Witch Trials. Among the accused is a well-respected woman named Rebecca Nurse. And when she's put on trial as a witch, the stakes are life or death. 
But Rebecca Nurse will not face her accusers alone. Her neighbors, who had previously kept silent, fearing they too would be implicated, decide something must be done. Together, they write this petition. This document reads, we never had any cause or grounds to suspect her of any such thing as she is now accused of. The parchment is signed by 39 of the most influential townsfolk and offers Rebecca an invaluable beacon of hope. It seems as if good will finally prevail. On June 30th, Rebecca's verdict is returned. She is found innocent. Her friends rejoice, but not for long. With her supposed victims writhing on the floor and claiming her specter was still attacking them, the judges ordered the jury to retire and think again. This time, they find her guilty. Her neighbor's honorable act has been in vain. On July 19th, Rebecca is hanged on Gallows Hill. But the injustice doesn't stop there. The petition not only fails to save Rebecca's life, it may condemn others to death. In turn, it led to accusations of witchcraft directed against some of them. Both of Rebecca's sisters are arrested for witchcraft. One is hanged. Just a few months later, the madness finally comes to an end. Spectral evidence is declared inadmissible, and the special court is disbanded. But the damage is already done. A truth made painfully evident by a visit to the Massachusetts Historical Society, where an aging petition pleads for mercy that will never come. Minnesota, in the heart of downtown St. Paul, is a building that houses many of the relics that shaped the character of America's 32nd state, the Minnesota History Center. From a 19th century mail wagon to the outlandish wardrobe of the pop star Prince, the artifacts inside these halls represent Minnesota's crowning achievements. But tucked away in its vaults is an unassuming relic that curator Matt Anderson says is linked to one of the state's darkest hours. It measures about 36 inches in height by 45 inches in width. And it's very thin, about a sixteenth of an inch. It's a standard issue interstate highway sign. A road sign like this could be easily overlooked because really we see them every day. But uh, this sign has a series of pretty prominent scuff marks on the front which would indicate that it's been through some kind of a trauma. The sign bears witness to an apocalyptic moment in the city's history, one that will forever haunt those who are in the Twin Cities on a fateful summer day in 2007. August 1st. It's just after 6 p.m. on one of the busiest crossings in the state, the I-35W Bridge. With four of its eight lanes closed for repaving, Hundreds of commuters sit idling in rush hour traffic. None of them know that disaster is about to strike. Without warning, the bridge's center span suddenly collapses, sending cars, trucks, and construction equipment plummeting into the frigid water below. 
It all happened in, in what seems like a fraction of a second, and I'm, I have no doubt the people who were on the bridge didn't even realize what had happened until it was all over and done. We have a breaking story to pass on to you. There has been a major bridge collapse in Minneapolis on one of the... In an instant, the balmy summer evening is transformed into a scene of cataclysmic destruction. Buttress here of the bridge buckled, and the whole thing crumbled. That freefall feeling, it felt like we did that twice. 17 vehicles have plunged nearly 100 feet into the Mississippi River. More than 90 cars are strewn about the broken highway. By the time the site is cleared and everyone is pulled from the wreckage, 13 people are dead and nearly 150 are injured. As the community grieves, one question remains. Why did this bridge, that had borne the weight of heavy commuter traffic for more than 40 years, fail so suddenly? An ordinary interstate highway sign. It may look like something you'd see on the drive to work every day. But in fact, the scratches and scars on this highway shield, now in the archives of the Minnesota History Center, tell the story of one of the most terrible events in state history. The collapse of Minneapolis's I-35W bridge. To find out why the bridge collapsed, the National Transportation Safety Board deploys a team of investigators. First, they turn their attention to one of the bridge's unique features, a modification that was made to the original structure in 1999 to cope with the brutal Minnesota winters, its de-icing system. The system would spray chemicals on the road surface anytime the temperature dropped below a certain point and help to cause the ice to melt and keep the travel lanes safe and free. The system was the first of its kind to be used in the U.S. and significantly reduced the number of accidents on the bridge in the wintertime. But the de-icing chemical, a type of salt called potassium acetate, may have been doing more harm than good. The chemical agent had in fact been causing some wear on the bridge, causing some corrosion to the steel, but not in a significant enough quantity to be a serious issue with the structural integrity of the bridge. So if the chemicals weren't to blame, what was? The answer to this mystery would actually be found deep in the archives of the Minnesota History Center. Not long after the uh, collapse, the investigators actually came here to look at our blueprints in our collection of state government records and uh, began to focus in on the original design of the bridge to see if there was in fact some elemental structural design flaw that contributed to the collapse. 1964. The twin cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul are bursting at the seams. To accommodate the burgeoning population, the state must expand its infrastructure. It constructs its most ambitious bridge project to date, the I-35W Bridge, which spans 2,000 feet across the Mississippi. And when you were driving across the bridge, it really didn't look any different from any other bridge you might see, but underneath you saw all of that intricate steel truss work. But is the bridge's complex truss work also its Achilles heel? Very quickly, the investigators zoomed in on the gusset plates as a potential weak point. The gusset plates are steel sheets that connect the beams and girders that in turn support the arch and bridge deck. 
A careful analysis of these plates leads investigators to a shocking realization. The gusset plates were simply too small for the task. They were made out of steel that was a half inch thick. As it turns out, that was just too thin to support the weight of the 35W bridge. An initial engineering miscalculation meant that the all-important gusset plates were only half as thick as they should have been. Had they been made out of an inch thick steel, uh, the bridge would probably still be standing. For the I-35W bridge, it wasn't a question of if disaster would strike, but when. In September 2008, after 339 days of construction, the new I-35W bridge opens to traffic in the exact same spot where the old span once stood. And each day, thousands of commuters pass by the new I-35W highway sign, whose predecessor, stored in the Minnesota History Center, marks one of the darkest days in the state's history. Nantucket, Massachusetts. This tiny island was built on the back of a once colossal industry, whaling. The Nantucket Whaling Museum is dedicated to preserving the heritage of the salty trade that brought this island fame and fortune. Skeletons, fishing boats, and harpoons are just a few of the seaworthy items in this collection. But perhaps the museum's most treasured object has never been out to sea. The 105 pages in this tattered journal are filled with meticulous longhand and detailed illustrations. Discovered in 1960, it tells the tale from a century earlier, an epic battle of man versus the sea. A legendary story of sacrifice and survival. What tragic events are told within these pages? And what classic piece of American literature did this journal inspire? The history of Nantucket is filled with stories about epic battles of man versus the sea. But one unassuming journal on display at the Nantucket Whaling Museum recounts a true story so shocking, it's hard to believe that it isn't a work of fiction. Nantucket, the 1870s. Thomas Nickerson sits down to pen his memoirs. The retired captain has countless adventures to draw upon. But it is the memory of his very first voyage, at the tender age of 14, that stands apart. In 1821, he set sail on the whale ship Essex. It was his young ambition to get on board this whale ship, and he was able to join on as the cabin boy. When the Essex reaches the Pacific, the hunting begins. On the morning of November 20th, a group of whales is spotted. The seamen launch the small hunting boats. Thomas Nickerson was at the helm of the whale ship when they spotted a whale on the horizon, a huge bull sperm whale, kind of looming on the horizon. The massive creature disappears beneath the water, then emerges right beside the Essex. The ship begins to turn away from the beast. Then suddenly, the whale rams the ship with its head. The whale had delivered a shuddering blow to this vessel. It stopped it dead in its tracks. 
Never before has a whale boat been attacked by its prey. The men reason that this angry beast is avenging the death of its fellow whales. With their ship critically damaged, the crew escape in their smaller whaleboats. Relieved that their lives have been spared, they watch in awe as the Essex plunges beneath the waves. Here they were, these three whaleboats in the middle of the Pacific with no prospects uh, before them. The crew of the Essex face a critical decision. Which direction should they sail? The nearest land is the exotic Marquesas Islands, thousands of miles away. There was this mythology among sailors that they were uh, populated by cannibals. And so there was kind of a primal fear about venturing into those territories. Instead, the crew heads east for South America, a choice they would come to regret. The harsh conditions of the open sea wear on the men, and they are running out of food and water. They're all emaciated. They have uh, boils on their bodies. Their lips and tongue are black. Unable to tolerate the agonizing conditions, some go mad, while others lose the will to live and die. In a traditional sailor burial, their bodies are released to the sea. It's not for some time that they would start to think of uh, the, the bodies of the dead in another way. After weeks of surviving the sea, the three boats lose sight of each other and are separated. And this was a great blow to their spirits. It left them even more lonely and desperate than they had been before. It's been days since the men have last eaten, and they are crippled by hunger. Together they make a terrible pact. Someone must die in order to sustain the others. They reach the gruesome decision to draw lots as to who would be killed next. The man who draws the shortest lot is condemned to death. The man who draws the second shortest lot must execute his shipmate with a pistol. The men watch in horror, then consume the body of the fallen sailor. And they are described as sucking the marrow from the life of the bones. As the death toll mounts, the living are filled with dread, wondering who will be the next to die. Then, against all odds, a ship is spotted on the horizon and the five surviving crew members are rescued. But spiritually and emotionally, they had been to the depths of hell and back, and they had survived. 20 years later, a young deckhand on another whale ship learns of the Essex's ill-fated adventure. Captivated by the harrowing journey, he uses it as the basis for a novel. The young deckhand was Herman Melville. And the novel was Moby Dick. Thomas Nickerson's journal remains on view at the Nantucket Whaling Museum, reminding us that the monolithic beast of Melville's tale was real, and that the men who faced it down lived to tell the tale. Portland, Maine, just steps away from the lobster houses and fishing boats of this picturesque New England town, sits a building whose contents are anything but quaint. The International Cryptozoology Museum. 
It is host to a unique collection of freakish fauna and strange science. Inside its galleries, 2,300 specimens, replicas, and artifacts document a singular mission to chronicle sightings of mysterious creatures from the infamous Bigfoot to fantastical lake monsters and prehistoric fish. The International Cryptozoology Museum contains all kinds of evidence for cryptozoology, but it also includes figures and figurines that represent what the creatures look like. According to curator Lauren Coleman, these objects relate to an exotic variety of creatures from across the globe. But one exhibit tells of a legend much closer to home. In this jar, you can see clearly that there's some kind of mysterious blob of flesh here covered in dark black hair. Next to it is a piece of bone. A collarbone and a severed foot. Some people say they belonged to a sinister beast that once stalked the woods of central Maine, a bloodthirsty creature that lurked in the night, an animal that became known as the Maine Mutant. It was variously described as a black panther, as a black hyena, as something huge that would scream, that would kill livestock, and nobody could ever catch it. But what was this mysterious creature? And could the contents of this jar prove its existence? 1991, Litchfield, Maine. It's the middle of the night. Martha David and her husband are sound asleep when they are awakened by a spine-chilling sound. They were hearing ungodly screeches, like a blood-curdling yell. Lurking in the woods by their house is a shadowy creature. It's covered with thick, matted fur. It moves on four legs. And they're not the only ones to claim they have encountered this terrifying animal. You got a lot of reports of people seeing fiery eyes, seeing shadowy figures, usually dark, hearing these screeches in the night. But despite dozens of alleged sightings, no one can answer the simple question, what is out there? It wasn't quite a mountain lion, but it wasn't exactly a black panther, so people were confused. But by the end of the decade, residents are no longer merely hearing strange noises and seeing shadowy figures. The animal, whatever it is, is turning violent. Any of the large hunting breeds that people had around their farms, Dobermans, Rottweilers, German Shepherds, were being killed by this creature. But this is just the start of the creature's reign of terror. When another spate of attacks is reported, residents launch a statewide hunt. But what kind of creature could be behind the killings? August 14, 2006, Turner, Maine. A woman hears her dog barking frantically. She goes outside to investigate and stumbles upon a mysterious carcass. The dead animal has thick matted fur, monstrous fangs, and an upturned snout. Is it a mutant coyote? A strange wolf-dog hybrid? Or could it be something else entirely? 
For two decades, Maine residents are terrorized by a shadowy creature that lurks in the woods at night. A sinister, fanged beast known only as the Maine Mutant. But what is this bizarre animal? In August 2006, a local woman comes across a strange carcass. Are these the remains of the creature itself? The dead animal looks eerily similar to the mystery beast that has mauled dogs and menaced residents for almost 20 years. When word of the find gets out, the media go into overdrive. The word Maine Mutant was used for the first time ever. Has the legend of the mutant monster finally come to an end in this overgrown field? Reporters contact the state's best-known cryptozoologist, Lauren Coleman. We went out there immediately the next day. But it's not soon enough. Vultures have picked apart the carcass. The only way to determine what the animal was is to order a DNA test. State officials collect a foot as a sample and send it to a lab. Two weeks later, the sample report came back, and they said, this is a dog. Was the infamous Maine mutant a feral dog? Many believe it was. For the next several months, no attacks on pets and livestock are reported, and the pet-owning population of Maine sleeps easy. But not everyone is convinced especially when rumors of animal attacks start to resurface, leading some people to wonder if the mystery beast is still loose in the woods of Maine. Finding this artifact has not ended the mystery. It's just continued it. The animal it came from might be dead, but the legend it represents is still alive. And today, visitors to the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland can catch a glimpse of what was once thought to be the remains of the Maine mutant, while the search for the real mystery creature continues. From haunted dolls to suspected witches, a vengeful whale to an engineering catastrophe. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.